Yes, that's going. That looks good. Can you still hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Cool. Okay, sweet. So please excuse me whilst I do the nerdy uh, introduction, but okay. for the second of the recording. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hacked Off. In today's episode, I have a very special guest with me. I have Mike Jones. Mike, in case the audience haven't heard of you yet, why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction? Well, my name is Mike Jones. I'm from the States. Um, I have a background in pen testing as well as being a former member of Anonymous. Um, I was chased around by people in suits for a while and uh, finally, <laughs> finally got free of them and doing legitimate work now and trying to uh, help make the internet a better place. I guess we should. I guess we should start at the beginning. I think most people who listen to this podcast are aware of like the pen test side of things, and obviously they hear me complain about pen testing a lot. But why don't you give us a brief introduction as to why people in suits are chasing you? Oh sure. Um, so I joined Anonymous. Uh, I actually started help forming it when I got out of the military. I was an intelligence analyst for the U.S. Uh, Navy, mm-hmm. and saw some things uh, during the war that I wasn't very happy with, and some of the ways that the U.S. media portrayed the war in Iraq was completely skewed. Um, the things that I experienced were nowhere near what was being played on CNN or, or Fox News. Um, so when when I got out, uh, I joined up with some guys who had the similar you know similar mindset on the government and the way that we were being treated, and really wanted to make a difference. Um, so we started forming Anonymous, and some of our early exploits were like the Church of Scientology. Um, not so much as a political standpoint, but uh, that was more of just an annoyance um, and the way that they treated people as well. I we went over, we went after FBI, CIA, we took down the FBI's website for a while. Um, and then we got involved with large corporations like Sony, Bank of America, um, several other targets that I can't really go into. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was definitely a life that um, looking back was not the best choice to make. Um, but I don't regret being part of anonymous because it got me to where I'm at now. Uh, and it gave me the mindset to change um, and try to help kids that are, you know, may not have someone around that can help them make the right cyber choice. Um, and I'm finding a lot of parents, there's a huge gap between the parents and the kids. Um, but anyways, back to, mm-hmm. back to why I was, chased and followed. Um, Barrett Brown was a good friend of mine and Barrett and I were investigated by the same FBI agent. Um, And he kind of played us both back and forth. I kind of knew what he was doing. Um, I'm not sure if Barrett did or not, Uh, but Barrett ended up getting arrested and did several years um, in prison. I actually just spoke to him not too long ago and he's still having some problems. so anyways, the, the FBI came to me and, and basically pushed over a stack of papers at a meeting they called downtown. Um, now, mind you, this meeting had Secret Service, FBI, um, you name it, they were there around the table. And it was pretty overwhelming. Uh, they passed, passed the stack of papers over and asked me if I knew what it was. And I said, no. And they said, those are your charges. And looking at the stack of paper, and if I was to do the calculations and, and find some kind of uh, some kind of uh, algorithm that could determine how many charges were there. I would say there was probably about 40 charges because <laughs> it was a pretty thick stack of paper. It's a strong opening position for yeah. them. 
Yeah. Um, so I looked at my lawyer and my lawyer just kind of, you know, nod his head like, you know, it's okay. And uh, I said, yeah, so, you know, what do you want me to do? Why am I here? And he said, well, we want you to help us. And I said, you know, me and my lawyer had talked about it beforehand and I didn't mind becoming a confidential, confidential informant as long as it had nothing to do with anything domestic. Like, just um, uh, just interject there, and for those who aren't entirely sure, uh, just briefly, what, what is a confidential informant? Basically, I continue doing what I'm doing within Anonymous um, with some guidelines, and I go back to the FBI and give them intelligence that was taken from whatever operation I was a part of. Okay. Uh, now, in my situation, I wasn't doing it against domestic groups like Anonymous. I was doing it against uh, groups like APT28 okay. and APT1. Um, which is Sophocy in, in China. Um, most mostly it was uh, APT twenty eight because I already had ties uh, within that group and I already knew a little bit of Russian. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was during the election election time frame. Okay. Um, so you can imagine what they had me collecting. But uh, after the election was over, yeah. Then I heard from them a couple more times, but then they just went ghost. I hadn't heard from them since. So. How does how does that work then? Is that um, just you continue as you are operating in the groups that you're operating in? Or do they specifically request that you look for certain people or look for certain evidence yeah. or something like that? Yeah, they're they're very, very detail oriented. So they gave me the targets that I was try that I was to try to get close to. Mm-hmm. And any information that I gathered, I was I was given a special email address to communicate with them. Um, of course they had burner phones and stuff they used on their end, I'm sure. Uh, and then it, they gave me, so the funny thing is this was not supposed to be paid by any means. You know, like they, there was no agreement to be paid, mm-hmm. but they kept handing me cash. Um, every time we met, cause I had to sign an OIA, which is an otherwise yeah. illegal activity. And for those of you who don't, who don't know what that is, it's basically saying, you know, you may have to commit a crime, uh, while doing uh, work for the FBI, but these are the constraints. You can't go outside these constraints, where it's considered, you know, an illegal act, and they'll they'll pull you in. So it has to be covered within the OIA for me to be able to do it. Um, so so they're, they're pretty detail oriented. What what kinds of things were were in the OIA then? Was it was it just specifically like um hacking related items, or was it was it really specific in terms of like targets and things? It was well when we first started out. It was just kind of a blanket OIA, um, basically just staying within the group and, and collecting information like conversations or whatever. And then it got a little bit more detailed when we targeted a specific individual, and we were going to do a transaction between me and him. So it got really really detailed uh, down to the time frame I was supposed to be online. And it was kind of hard because I was juggling two different time time zones. I was juggling the U.S. and Russia. Um, so they really had me. They had a they had a good deal with me. They had a you know a free consultant, and they only had to throw me like cash every once in a while. Uh, they did offer to buy me a new laptop to do the work on. Because the funny story, I refused to do the laptop the work on my laptop, my home laptop. Yeah. And uh, they said, well, you know, we'll get you a computer. I said, no, no, no. no. Why don't you give me the money and I'll go buy the computer? Because <laughs> I'm not accepting anything the FBI is going to hand over to me. So, but yeah, they gave me a, some cash under the table. Um, that went on for a while. I was a CI for about a year. I mm-hmm. uh, also did some work with them um, for, I guess, terrorism uh, plots that were in the U.S., and especially in Houston, 
um, they had some questions about some people that lived near me and, and I, you know, went and got as much information as I could. Was that, uh, was that um, computing related stuff or was that just using your um, computing skill set to gather that information? The, the latter. Okay. Um, what I found with the FBI in the U.S. is that they do have a tech ops team, mm-hmm. but that tech ops team is so inundated with uh, requests and with demands that the agents themselves don't have the resources, the technical resources to be able to do their jobs all the time. So what I found is they go out and get guys like me and, and people like you to come in and kind of augment their staff. Um, it's not always the best deal, but I mean, it's extra cash for, for pen testers or, or for people <laughs> who want to help them out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. How did that relationship but, work then in terms of, I mean, obviously you talked about, you know, they were giving you guidelines on how to operate, but how frequently were you communicating with them? Was it like, a, right, once a week you have to come in for a meeting or was it just a random? It was very random. Um, we did meet at least, at the very least, once a week in person. Oh, yeah. um, communication was constant. Yeah. Uh, it was basically a 24-hour 24 hour day job, um, which added to the level of stress that I already had because I knew that if I didn't make them happy with the CI work that – I was going to end up facing that stack of papers again. So <laughs> That must have been, uh, I mean, I know a lot of people in, in pen testing certainly talk about um, burnout and things like that, but you must have surely experienced something similar if you are working um, so continuously with them and also having the additional pressure of if you don't do a good job, then that stack of papers still exists. Like, how did that work? Were you given a certain amount of time or was it like you said that you just worked until they were happy and now they ghosted you? <laughs> I, I worked until they were happy and, and uh, you know, I, I know they're still there and I know that, you know, every once in a while they still pop up or send me an email just to see how things are going. Um, but yeah, it was, it was stressful. And plus on top of that, I had a full-time job. Yeah. So it was, it was a lot. It was a lot on my shoulders. Um, and not to mention the tension, you know, that I already felt facing some sort of, you know, huge legal case if things didn't work out well. Yeah. So. So um, how have things been going, I guess, now uh, post-CI work? Um, you know, what, what do you do? What do you do to help out for the greater good now? <laughs> well, um, yeah, so my past didn't end when I left the CI work. It kind of followed me over here. Um, I was working for a company in the U.S. and, and uh, doing work over here. We have an office in Scotland, so I was traveling back and forth. And um, ended up getting on a tour, a speaking tour called Hackers Hack. Uh, hackers inside the mind of hacker. Yeah, there it is. Um, I've been on so many, it's, it's hard to keep them straight. But anyways, uh, yeah. So I was on that speaking tour and decided that I was going to move over to the UK. Mm-hmm. So I went ahead and laid plans to to come over. Um, had been here probably about four or five months, and was going to fly back to the states for DefCon and Black Hat. And I was at a, a hotel at Gatwick airport. And unfortunately I had a, a, a medical emergency and had to be taken to the hospital. And I always keep my passport hidden inside the hotel room away from everything else. So that, you know, if they come in and steal the bags, at least I still have my documentation. Yeah. And, uh, when we went back to the hotel to check and, you know, check to see if everything was there and get our, get our belongings, everything was there and nothing was missing except for my passport. And uh, we had the hotel staff scour the hotel. It obviously wasn't there. Yeah. And 
so to make a long story short, um, they denied my passport mm-hmm. when I applied for a new one. They were very helpful at the embassy to discontinue my previous passport <laughs> and and claim that it was lost. Um, but when it came to getting a new one, that was a no-go. So right now, I'm basically without a country. I'm not a citizen here, and I can't go back to my homeland. So I'm just kind of in limbo, I guess. <laughs> Are there, are there any other kinds of restrictions following, I guess, following the CI work? Um, you know, they, they give you guidelines for, for operating, doing that work, but were there any kind yeah. of restrictions placed on you following that? No, not really. Um, the conversation, last conversation I had with them, we really went over the type of work I did, um, the type of intelligence that was gathered, and what I could and couldn't talk about for, you know, eons, I guess, until I die twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> But yeah, that's that's really guidelines. Okay. So, um, so you do an awful lot of speaking. I know we've certainly spoken together a few times at a few events. Um, uh, what 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 kind of messages are you spreading? Is it just uh, your your history, or do you have any kind of message that you like to spread around? Um, you know, protecting the next generation from falling down the path of cybercrime. Sure. So when I first started, it was about my history, and I got kind of burned out on telling my story. Mm-hmm. Um, and plus, I, I didn't know, you know, if it was going to people, if the demand was there for me to keep t- telling my story because I'd you know, told it so many times. Yeah. So I switched it up a little bit. And what I talk about now um, really is two factors. So I have like the section of my talk that I talk about helping the kids that have been identified as potential cyber criminals in the cyber prevent program. And then I also try to talk about how we spend so much money building new devices and building new appliances and these wicked algorithms and, you know, looking back over the past 30 years, I mean, really what, what have we done? I mean, we still have the problem and the problem still gets worse and worse. Um, so one of the things that, that I talk about is goes back to that movie Jurassic park, um, where Jeff Goldblum's character, mm-hmm. uh, talks about how the, the dinosaurs have morphed or mutated to where they're both, both sexes because the life will always find a way. And I look at, Look at the internet as the same the same type of situation. We can throw things in the way of the attackers, but they're always going to find a way in. Um, so why not take that effort and really focus on people and getting to know the people, and you know, really getting back to basics instead of you know taking that money that we spend you know on appliances and, and actually invest that in people that that work for us. You know, that's you- that to me is going to be. When you talk about people, um, do you mean uh, developing kind of like the next level of of technical specialist or are you talking like security awareness here? Security awareness and building the next level. Um, Most of it it has to do with awareness because even in the company that I I worked for previously, Mm -hmm. they would send out those phishing campaigns and nobody even paid attention to the phishing campaigns. Yeah. Uh, They would get caught in a snare and then we would have the follow up and nobody would nobody really cared. And as long as security did their monthly checkbox, then everything was supposed to be good. But it doesn't work that way. And uh, I, I realized in the workplace that, you know, bottom line is everybody's there to make money. I mean, mm-hmm. all jokes aside, everybody makes money. That's all they're really concerned about. But in order to run an efficient business and a secure business, you really have to work as one team. And I know working security for so long, when I walk down the hall and I'm going to, let's say, accounts payable and I'm approaching our cubicles, 
I can always hear the Imperial Death March in the background because when they see security coming, that's the last person they want to talk to. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've talked about focusing on building better relationships within the organizations because without it, security is going to fail. How do you how do you think this should work then? Is this a, a thing that each organization individually should drive or is there is there maybe some government oversight or something that we should add? Um, into well, this? Like how, how do we as a society get better at this? I think it's going to have to be multifaceted, right? So on a global scale, um, I think that having each individual state or individual country mm-hmm. um, try cases of cybercrime, I think it's a waste. Um, because what happens is, as a hacker, we're going to look for the country that has the least amount of, uh, I guess, puts less pressure on you know, the hacker. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to find the ones that have the, the loosest cyber laws. So in order to avoid that and get you know, a favorable, you know, equal level of um, prosecution across the board, then we're going to have to move cybercrime into, like, I, I would say, a global court. And I get a lot of pushback when I talk about that. Um, but when you look at, at the way that the U.S. Uh, punishes and uh, puts people behind bars and, and the timeline for the punishment, I mean, when a guy's doing 22 years for denial of service and, and his cellmate is doing two years for, for murder, you know, we definitely have to find a better way to do this because it's not working. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think um, it's a, it's controversial and I think it's a thing that maybe people who are just hearing about it uh, won't fully understand because it's a difficult thing to say you know we should have an overarching governmental system that that's kind of greater than a nation's debt but I think hopefully uh, people can agree that at, at a lower level there is a problem maybe you know we'll, we'll disagree with what the solution should be but but there is a problem when you see things like um, not only what you point out there of uh, people committing different crimes where the um, potential sentences are so vastly off, but also things like um, people committing the same crime in the UK and somebody right. else committing the same crime in the US, and then their sentences being like wildly, wildly off. And of exactly. course, we, we see that with, um, I mean, historically groups like Lulsec, right, back in 2011, um, mm-hmm. some of them in the US, some of them in the UK are charged under two legal systems, um, and then their sentences just being just being wildly, wildly different. Yeah. Well, in, in, in the U.S., they like to sensationalize uh, cybercrime, right? Mm-hmm. So it's very rare that they catch somebody like me or, or you or catch Barrett or you yeah. know, whatever. But the reaction, once they do have somebody like us, it's like a circus sideshow. Everybody's got to see. And it becomes headlines. And it just that's all they talk about for days. I mean, yeah. is this... Um... So this may be a part of the problem, the fact that they're sensationalized, because um, if they're making such a big deal out of it, that's almost romanticizing the idea, right? There's a lot it of, is. Um, I mean, I guess if we just take it a step back and, and look at, uh, in your earlier days talking about Anonymous, you, you were originally at the beginning of this episode listed several targets, right? The Church of Scientology, the FBI, right. um, the, the targets that you listed were, were really varied. And I think... <laughs> Um, anyone could have a grudge with some of those organizations. So on one hand, we have the crimes being sensationalized, being romanticized. And then on the other hand, you just have such a range of organizations that some people out there could be, you know, disgruntled with in some way. There's a lot of reasons why you might not like the Church of Scientology, for example. Um, (laughs) So like maybe that's a part of the problem where (laughs) building these things up and, and kind of filling the headlines with, you know, 
cyber criminal mastermind caught. Maybe that's yeah. part of the problem as to why um, people think, you know, younger people think, hey, I'm not going to play video games where I'm never going to be famous. You know, I'm going to uh, yeah. hack a major organization where I'll make headlines. You know, it's funny you say that too, because I go to some of the interventions and the response I get is so different, right? So the parents are like really wanting to know, you know, how I, how I thought my thought pattern and, and yeah. how I got away from it. And the kids, it, it's almost like, they look up to the person that's going in and talking about their background. Right. So I've had kids ask to like take photos with me and it's just really strange because in the States, you know, they just want to round us up and throw us in jail. Yeah. I and guess, that's, um, that's how- I guess, can we talk a little bit about uh, the prevent program that you've worked with? Like what that is and, sure. and, and how sure. it helps. Sure. Um, so the prevent program, uh, the Met police um, spearheaded that and what they do is they identify kids who have been uh, guilty of committing some sort of low-level cybercrime, whether it be denial of service or hacking their, their school's game system or, or their school's network. Um, yeah, so that's what they look for in, in the kids they bring in. Now, the kids are anywhere from like 11 to 18, I believe. Um, and the youngest I've seen is 11 years old. Yeah. And what they do is they bring in people like me to talk about my background, what made me change my thought pattern and make different choices, and what I do now to show them that, you know, hey, you may be on the brink of being in trouble now, but you could actually be a team leader or you could start your own company or, you know, whatever. You can be successful. Um, and then we're also toying around with the idea of a mentor program. So the Met Police uh, got funding for um, a mentor mentorship program where I could potentially be a mentor to some of these kids and they would have somebody to turn to, uh, when, you know, let's say they're on the brink of making a bad choice or they're confused about a choice they're about to make, um, to sort, sort of help them out. Plus, you know, some of these kids, a lot of them have, um, autism or on the autism, autism scale. And I can relate pretty well to them because I have Asperger's. I have a very, like case of Asperger's and I've learned how to cope with it. Um, but some of these kids are just realizing that, you know, they have autism, so they feel alone already. And so where do they go? They go to the internet to, you know, do what they do. Um, but the prevent program is great and I've seen a great, uh, you know, great success come out of it. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know what the funding is going to look like for next year. Yeah. I know the NCA and the Met police, um, we're talking about, budget for the intervention program. So the Met Police may take it over completely. Met Police were running it with financial help of the NCA, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that's going to change. Yeah. In your experience, do do many of the, I, I guess kids is the right word, but do, do many of the people um, on the program have uh, similar outlooks? Are they doing it for similar reasons? So you, you mentioned Asperger's, for example, but mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you find that I'm um, talking to them that they all have similar backgrounds or is it really varied as to why they might be kind of playing around with the idea of cybercrime? I would say that 90% of it are kids that have some kind of neurodiversity or some kind of behavioral behavioral issue. Um, and then there's the, the level of kids that like I've seen one kid who had major, you know, problem communicating with people. Yeah. Not in an, not an autistic way, but more of an ego way. Um, and he was just very eccentric about, I can do this, I can do that. And, 
you know, it's people like that that normally don't grab onto the prevent program and end up being, you know, multiple offenders. Um, and that, that's the whole purpose of the prevent program is to weed out those people that are going to be reoffending and focus on the kids that are there to change. So what kind of, uh, what kind of help does the program give them? I mean, obviously there's, there's speaking to people like you about, um, how they can become successful without falling into to cybercrime, but is, is there more to it or is it just showing them, you know, like, uh, examples of a better way? Oh, there's a lot more to it. So they have, um, companies that come in as well and talk about, uh, different jobs they have within their organization for people like those kids. Um, as well as internships where kids can go and intern at different companies. Uh, so the industry's really been proactive uh, with the Prevent program, um, and I've seen a lot of good things come out of it. But also the police uh, offer a lot of really cool things for the kids to do as well, like hack the police. It's not only for kids, but yeah. it's open to the public. And uh, I met a lot of kids there that were really talented and, and really putting their skills to use. Cool. That's that's pretty awesome. Um, I have I have a question actually. I, get, I guess you're in a, a good position to answer it. Um, in terms of uh, helping organizations, so, so generally improving security, do you think there is any benefit in organizations working with former criminals, or do you think you can get all of the security benefit from just working with people who have uh, purely been pen testing throughout their career, purely uh, purely on the the legal side of things? So uh, I, I have a bias, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. And this question is actually a question I get asked a lot. And it's sparked some controversy in the past with other people. Okay. Uh, but I'll, I'll never deter away from the fact that in order to truly be effective and effective, you know, most of the time, you have to know who's attacking you and how they're attacking you. And how are you going to do that with somebody who, you know, picked up a certification book or went to a boot camp for a week and got a cert. It just, it doesn't happen that way. But a lot of companies think that, oh, well, there's all these certifications available. If someone goes out and gets all the pen testing certifications, then they're exactly who we need. And that's, that's, you know, that's the framework they work with. But, you know, I've trained some of these people and I've brought them into organizations. I've, I've hired both people who have a book background Mm -hmm. as well as I've hired people with my background. And to be honest with you, the people that have my background have a passion. They do it because it's a passion and it's who they are. Um, the people that do it, you know, go through certifications and that's all they do. I mean, that's great that they want to get involved and it's great that we're expanding, you know, the number of people that work in cybersecurity. But if you don't know the attacker and you can't perform like an attacker, then really honestly, you know, I'll ask you the question, how effective can someone be without that skill set on board? Yeah, I think um, bringing it in, it's that, it's that idea of uh, why is a person doing it, right? It's, it's almost not like um, what their background is, but, but it's, it's why have they got into that background? Because you talk there about um, a person having the passion, right? Right. And um, if you've got someone who's, who's uh, in it for the easy life or in it for the money or in it for anything other than it, it's just their focus, they're maybe yeah. not going to have the same kind of uh, capabilities or it'll take them longer to, to get the same kind of output. Right. And the funny thing is uh, about our industry, right? So my dad always told me growing up that, you know, don't, don't let your job define who you are. Yeah. Don't let your work define who you are. But I look at it a different way. You know, I'm not a workaholic, but what I do is who I am. And I'm not letting my job define me. I'm defining my job. Um, 
But I, I always ask people when they interview with me, you know, as far as their background goes, you know, it's not only about certifications, not only about, you know, solving for X. It's also about the psychology, right? So I, what I found is that most people like us are creative. Yeah. You know, there, there's either some kind of interest in art or music or something to that, to that, you know, to that matter. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty, that's pretty constant across the board. I, I haven't hired anybody yet who has who hasn't had at least some level of artistic mm-hmm. or create you know creativity yeah uh, ability i guess uh <laughs> i asked the question really because um of a question that i get asked a lot certainly um after i've given talks and things and i imagine you get asked um something similar as well and and it's always funny because people ask the question but i always think really they mean something different so people very right. often ask how did i get into security you know like they'll come <laughs> up after talks like hey how did you come into security and, and I think what they mean really is like, what are the paths? Like, how can they right. move into a job like this? Because, right. um, I don't know, maybe you'll, maybe you'll feel the same, but it's like, I wouldn't recommend the way that I did it as the optimal path. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, hey, I can tell you what my background is, but it, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it as, as the way in. Absolutely. You know, I, I, like I said before, I, <clears throat> I don't regret my background. Yeah. I don't, I don't regret what I did. I do regret the people that I harmed, but I don't regret what I did. Um, and it doesn't take someone like me to, to do security. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, it's all about passion. Yeah. But if someone thinks that they can pick up a book or take one certification automatically, that makes them a security expert. Yeah. That I have a problem with. Yeah, I think it, it comes up a lot. Um, so I'll give another, another example where it comes up for me is um, this idea of um, whether you need a degree or not. And I, I've talked about it previously on the podcast and talked about all of the ways you can get into security without having a degree. And people very often will have a kind of a prejudice with, with me because I have a master's degree in, in security. But the thing is, I had been working in security for years before I got the degree. I didn't do the, the normal thing of getting the degree and then moving into security. And I think right. the, the problem there is like, is like people presuming things, right? It's like right. uh, presuming there is some uh, perfect method of becoming a security tester or becoming a, a security expert. Yeah. And I, I always tell people too, is don't compare yourself to somebody else. You know, everybody works on their, on their own speed and you're not going to go from newbie to God in two days. It's not going to happen. Um, and they have to be patient. So I, I hired one, uh, cybersecurity analyst for the company I used to work for. And, uh, he had no certs and he just had that mindset. I, I was willing to invest some time in him and some money and, his only downfall was that he wanted to be where I was at, but he just started cybersecurity. And it was so frustrating for him because he, you know, every pen yeah. tester, once they pop that first shell, it's like the lights come on, you know? And with him, it was, it was frustrating to him because he couldn't get to that point, but he was pushing himself too hard. And what I realized is that when he backed off himself and we cut down his training time a little bit and kind of gave him some, you know, padded, padded room, to where he could relax. He did great. Yeah. You know, he became one of the best pen testers, but it's all about each person's individual, you know, and by throwing out a cert and saying, okay, you have to have this cert. We look only for this cert for you to be part of our team. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I, it's the same as the degree thing, right? It's like you, you must yeah. have a degree or we won't even consider you. It's just, yeah, I steer away from places like that. You know, I, I, I don't want to become a company like that, yeah. you know, because those are the places where, and I've, I've worked at places like that, where you walk in and they have a security group, 
But that security group really has no power over what goes on at all. Um, I was actually told to cover up a breach one time because they didn't want to report it to the board because the board would be upset. And I, I said, you know what, here's the report. And uh, I've done my part. What you decide to do with it, that's up to you. Yeah. But I think, and that's what um, I think too is I think integrity. That crazy to um, a lot of people who'll probably be listening to the podcast. But I think pretty much any tester will experience that to some degree in their career, and it, and it might I've, not be a breach that's being covered up. But uh, I guess more commonly in my experience, it might be you know you report a, a critical vulnerability, you pop a shell somewhere that you just shouldn't be able to get. You report it right. to the organization, and then they say, oh, yeah, thanks. Uh, we're going to accept the risk. Yeah, exactly. No action needed. I, I had one of those in, in uh, on the east coast of the U.S. It was a hospital. It was funded by the government. And they had to get you know, a certain level of you know, security you know, awareness, and they had to have a certain, um, I guess, number of criticals before they would get funding for the next, <laughs> next go-round. Well, their admin was using... Uh, clear text passwords to log into all of the servers. Yeah. And I went and, you know, I gave the report and I said, this, this can't be, this can't happen. You have to find another way to communicate with these servers, not in clear text. And the answer I got from the board and from the CISO was, well, it's secure because only one guy has that password and he only uses it on the servers. Yeah. I said, well, wait a minute. So it's clear text. So everybody has a password. Let's not, let's not, you know, dance around it but <clears throat> yeah i mean it's standards like that you know like people force you to or try to force you to cover up things that you won't that you don't think should be mm -hmm. covered up um and that's like you said that's pretty prevalent in our industry you know i've i've had people argue with me over what is and what isn't a vulnerability on a report yeah uh, but integrity is number one when it comes to a position as a pen tester you yeah. can't be swayed by either side you have to just be completely unbiased and you know put forth the, the data and let them deal with the data. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a difficult thing. Um, it's certainly something you, you just get experience with as a tester and you, you know, you find your way, but, but I, I feel the same integrity is the, is the key thing and you report what you find and yeah. you know, they, they action that or don't action that on kind of on their head. Exactly. And I think going back to certifications, I mean, don't you think that the certification industry has gotten out of control? Like, some of these certs, I, I know when I took my first SAN cert, right? So I took five of them in one day and I challenged them and they fought me on the results. Like, so I passed all the exams, but then they tried to tell me that I cheated. Yeah. And I said, no, you know, there's no way. So they went back, they put me through an audit committee, found out that I didn't cheat and then asked me to help be an instructor. And I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just, they put all this value on certification. Yeah. And what that tells me is that somebody knows how to go study for a test and has a yeah. commitment to finish the, pro the process. And also, also, some people, uh, like in my opinion, are just uh, wired to certain things, right? So, so you hear about it yeah. with people in school, like some people prefer, you know, written coursework, some people prefer exams, yeah. some people prefer practical, some people prefer kind of, um, you know, multi-choice, whatever. Um, and I've definitely experienced that. I think there's probably like two certification issues in industry. One is um, cost. You know, if you're trying to break into the industry and then you look at certain certifications, like the cost in exam is like five, six thousand pounds. And, yep. uh, you know, you're reading a job spec and you need three of them. It's, it's just crazy. And there are lower cost options, but some of them are crazy. And then there's also like the number of certifications, just like the, 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 
huge number of, of different ones, it can be difficult to know, you know, which one's yeah. the, the best. Or if you're if you can only afford or you only have enough time to get one or two, like kind of prioritizing can be can be super hard. Absolutely. And I think as far as pen testing certs go, OSCP by far is probably one of the best certs to get. Um, the, the CEH, that was one of my first certs, but that was kind of a required cert by um, a company I was working for. Uh, and back then I was part of version one. Yeah. So it, was, it wasn't that great of a test back then. Um, I don't know how it's changed now, but again, certs are, you know, all it does is say that you can pass a test, you know, the, the knowledge that they you know presented to you. But as a company, like when I, when I worked for a company called NEC, mm-hmm. um, I had a boss, his name is Llewellyn Derry, great boss. And I got them to ease up the requirement for certifications by creating my own uh, virtual network yeah. with vulnerable machines on it. And given our applicants a couple hours to go through, try to find vulnerabilities and give me a report and present it as if they were presenting it to a client. Uh, And that way we got away from a lot of the requirements for the standard, you know, CEH certification because they could actually prove hands on that they were capable of doing the job. I think there's a lot of benefits to doing it that way. And um, I think having, like having been a hiring manager for years, there's, um, there's another benefit, not only in terms of like people who don't have the certification, but people who, who just can't afford it, right? They can study right. to the same level and then demonstrate the skill without necessarily having kind of the bill of having to pay for the exam. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the certification companies like EC Council really cater to big business. They want their cert to be the standard yeah. for those companies and build that relationship. So they're really not producing these certs and to make them available focused on the people who want to get into security. They're really looking at people who are already in security to pick up these certs, which I think is kind of backwards. And I I think as well, like the, the, the value of certifications changes greatly throughout your career, right? So when you're trying to break into security, then, you know, any certification will probably help because Mm -hmm. it's like, uh, uh, almost additional points. Right. But then as you have other demonstrable skills, as you have demonstrable um, experience, those kinds of things, I think it it just, um, it's valued a a lot less. And I think sometimes that can, that can confuse people. So for example, you know, you mentioned the CEH, um, I have done the CEH. I did it, I don't know, like 2011, 2012, something like that. So a long, long time ago. Um, Uh and I, I don't, I don't list that certification anymore. It's not like on my profile or my, um, CV or anything like that. Because I, I don't think it's necessary as right. as uh, a, a list item. I think maybe that that can confuse some people who are trying to trying to break in and they're coming and they're right. asking like, how do you get into security? And they're having this kind of like, do you need a degree? Do you need certifications? Problem to kind of work yeah. out, you know, how much value there is in each one. You know, there's there's so much more value in like the local meetups, and you know, with the different conferences yeah. than there is with any certification, I believe. Yeah. Because not only do you make the connections that are valuable while you're you know, doing business, but also gives you a chance to see the community and the mindset. And, you know, you get to figure out as a newbie, you get to figure out, do I really want to be in this organization yeah. or in this industry? And it gives you a good sample. I think the, the industry is so broad as well. Like the, the benefit of meetups, conferences, that kind of thing is just like, you know, when you talk about security testing, we talk about pen testing as if it's a single thing. And it's like, there's all kinds right. of specializations, right? There's, oh, yeah. there's broad things like infrastructure versus web application, but there's also things like, you know, hardware. A lot of testers yep. out there will never touch hardware because it just doesn't feature within their specialization. Right, right. And it's so specific too. Like I've done a little bit of hardware, yeah. um, spe- especially when it comes to like the vehicle entertainment systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really hard to find jobs like that. 
um, I had to really look in the States to find a contract that dealt with, uh, you know, guidance or navigation systems or entertainment systems. I guess, uh, I guess I got another question for you. Um, we talked a lot about like the, the background and, and getting in and getting into security and, and obviously, um, whether there is a preference between, you know, a certification based background or I guess crime based background. Um, uh-huh. how would you recommend to somebody who's looking to get into the industry? to avoid the criminal side of things whilst also making sure that they like maximize their their value so that they can you know break in easier yeah so with the kids i really focus a lot on this because the kids are going to play yeah and the the whole the whole point of of the intervention is trying to get these kids to play on safe playgrounds and so i I showed them how to build virtual networks Mm -hmm. uh virtual box and I, I showed them resources to download you know vulnerable images yeah. um, I talked about hacking the box I mean there's so so many avenues that they can go down that aren't illegal and they're actually a lot of fun like hack the box yeah sure. so on the on the flip side of that then if you've got somebody who's who's spent you know a lot of time trying to break in or maybe they're at that age where they're just a bit too young to kind of be looking at um, employment how do you how do you avoid burnout? How do you make sure that you're not spending all of your time learning, playing, hacking, and and, and you end up kind of running out of steam? Yeah. So for me, it was a little different, and I, I don't know if if I'm unique. I doubt that I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but this has been my identity for as long as I can remember. Um, so there, I didn't really have to deal with the burnout factor uh, in my career. But with with kids, you know, it's a little different because their attention span is so short. Um, But what we found is that if you give them multiple resources and just keep throwing stuff at them, they'll continue to do it. The the kids, they love to hack and they don't burn out. And that's the that's the cool thing about it is these kids get so excited and have so much energy. Uh, Just spending the weekend with them during the intervention was wearing me out. I mean, it (laughs) makes me really makes me really feel old when, you know, you've got an 11 year old this running circles around you. So. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's crazy um yeah. oh, i think that's all of the questions that i had written down um is there anything else that you you wanted to bring up that we that we haven't talked about yet uh not really i, I wanted to throw this out there though um, i talked to a friend of mine met police uh, i guess it was about a week ago and you know that the cyber crime has like gone through the roof since this coronavirus started it's been insane. I guess. I guess. I'm um, just talking about coronavirus. Um, other than uh, the increased amount of crime, do you think it affects organizations in any other way? A lot of companies are talking to us about like what what should we be doing, and I think the big thing is an increased amount. But is there any other differences? No, no. I, th- I think what we're going to see is a lot of. I mean, we've already seen it. The phishing stuff, yeah. the vishing stuff. Um, that's going to be on the rise. Um, and they're getting trickier about it as well. But I don't think that they should change anything that they're doing. I mean, we're still looking at the same attacks. I haven't seen any breakout of any zero-day attacks mm-hmm. you know, during the coronavirus. So I would say you know, just continue doing what you're doing, business as usual. Yeah, I think that's a really important message actually to put out there is um, you know, if you're uh, making major changes to your security stance following an emergency <laughs> situation, you were probably doing it wrong to start with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And they're watching you do it too. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's a there's a lot of other things to worry about just from the the running the business side of things, right? Even if security hasn't changed, there's just uh, business continuity to worry about. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, uh, Mike, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. 
And um, yeah, just just thanks. Thank, thanks for having me. And uh, anytime you need someone to speak, I'm here. Thank you.